You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning, and welcome to University Baptist Church. My name is Toph, and I am the community pastor here. I'm just going to move this out of the way so you all can see our folks better. Uh, my friends Marcus and Katie and Gabe and Carrie are going to come join me on stage. Um, and so I'm really excited about this morning. Um, probably six and nine months ago, um, what is time with COVID? Who knows? Um, I started thinking more, especially with the events in our country over the last several years, um, and being more acutely aware that as a pastoral staff and a full-time pastoral staff, we are four white uh, cisgender folks, um, and that UBC is a predominantly white congregation. And so I've been thinking more about how do we elevate um, voices and how do we get more representation on stage? Um, and so we are, this is the first in a series. I don't, a series is a weird word. I don't know what you call something you do maybe two to three times a year. Is that a part-time series? Um, if you have any suggestions, please let me know. Um, but this is the first um, in a series uh, for us of where we get the privilege to listen to stories that may be different from ours, um, to experiences that may be different from ours. Um, and we trust that in listening to those stories that we'll be more formed in the image of who God is. Um, and so I'm excited to um, kind of proctor a discussion today among my friends um, as we listen to them, and um, excited for us to kind of join in that. And so um, would you say a word of prayer with me really quickly? Holy Spirit, we ask that we would be attentive to how you might lead us during this time, that we would be attentive to the stories of my friends here, and listening to their experiences, that we may have a fuller picture of who God is, that you would give us ears to hear, and that we would leave this space more formed in the image of Jesus. Amen. I don't know where I'm going to sit. Okay. Why don't I do this? Um, okay, so let's start. Um, why don't you all start? Um, so we'll start with you, Katie, because you're next to me. Start by telling us a little bit about yourself, what brought you to UBC, and how long you've been here, and why you stay. Sure. So my name is Katie. Um, I moved to Waco, gosh, beginning of 2017, so about four years ago. I came here for a job, um, and everyone told me that I should check out UBC, and of course, you know, everyone's like, you'll love it. And you're like, I don't know if that's actually, you know, you don't know me that well. Um, but of course they came here and uh, it was fantastic. I um, really loved the environment. I loved just how much time was put into um, the music that we sang and attention to the liturgy and just the people who are here and looking around this room, um, as most of y'all can tell, it's not huge. <laughs> um, and it was nice because I looked around and I thought if I tried really hard, I could try to get to know everyone here. Um, and that was a really nice feeling and felt very um, comforting. And then joined Demikasa and yeah, been loved, loved being part of UBC ever since. Great, thank you. Okay, I'm Carrie, and I've been at UBC, I believe the truth is five years, and it always feels super hard to, to remember how to do the math on that. So um, I came to UBC originally um, sort of on a fluke because it met a certain time 
of day that I needed, but then I stayed at UBC because I love the commitment to no distinction between the sacred and the secular. I think that's a really important uh, thing for me. And then I also feel very, um, that words matter a lot and are very important. And so the the prayers that we're saying and the songs that we're singing and what they include and what they leave out and how they are thoughtfully, prayerfully um, considered was another main thing that kept me at UBC, among other things. Great. Oh, we've got one. Yep, we've got another one. Uh, hi, I'm Marcus. Um, I first came to Waco in 2013 for undergrad and have not been able to leave. Um, and so I think when I think about UBC, I think, you know, I came, I've started going to UBC the moment I started coming to Waco, but that's not the case. I've um, been here for about five years. Um, and what was different about my first couple experiences coming here was how the leadership team here poured into you the moment that you stepped through the doors. They're welcoming you. Um, we had a backside event we went to, I think, and all three of y'all, you, Jamie, um, and our fearless leader, um, sat down and we talked about Enneagram and um, life in general, how things were going. And that's not an experience that I had at some of the other churches that I went to here in town. And so um, that coupled with the type of preaching that happens um, is very engaging for me. Um, I've always had a hard time falling asleep during church. And, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't, that doesn't happen here. <laughs> At least we, not most of the time. Okay. Hello everyone, I'm Gabe. Uh, I've been in Waco since uh, 2012 for undergrad, so just one year more than Marcus. Uh, and I I've been to a few different churches, but landed at UBC here uh, two, two years ago, because uh, that's where my lovely now wife uh, went. Uh, but besides uh, kind of moving, transitioning together, also just the character of who Josh is was really uh, nice. Uh, I had some classes in undergrad where he was a guest speaker, and the discussions there uh, mirrored what he talked about when I came uh, to UBC, so he was really consistent, and I really liked that, and he was really honest in those small group discussions, and it carried over to the same discussions, you know, y'all were having two years ago here, uh, and I realized, like, that was something that was really important to me, and it drew me in closer to the church as well. Great. Thank you all. Um, Marcus, we recently were talking, um, and I see that you brought the book with you, uh, St. Jenny Brown's I'm Still Here, um, and there was one particular story when you were reading that, that... Um, kind of awoke something within you, or Mike. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the book that he's referencing, it's I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. Um, this is a book that I read in grad school a couple years ago. And in the first, I think it's the second chapter, yeah, um, she's sharing an experience that she had um, with her dad in the store and so re I'll, I'll read the story real quick and kind of share how that, how that kind of plays into my life. Um, so she writes, following my dad through the, store sec through the toy section of the party store, 
I picked up a little trinket that caught my attention. Don't even think about it, he said, shooting me down before I could debate whether or not to ask him to buy it. I sighed, put the trinket back, and scuffed my hands in the pockets of my overalls, willing myself not to be tempted again. My father glanced back at me, but when he noticed my little fists bulging in my, from my pockets, he stopped in the middle of the aisle and turned all the way around. Don't do that, he said sternly. Do what? I wondered to myself, I had long ago learned to tame my smart mouth with my dad. Was he now reading my mind? Don't ever do that, he repeated more softly this time, bending his six foot two frame toward me to let me know I wasn't in trouble, but I was still confused. What had I done, done wrong? Even if you put it back on the shelf, Austin, you can't touch store products and then put your hands in your pockets. He explained as his large hands gently removed mine from their denim hiding place. Someone might notice and assume you are trying to steal. I nodded. It took some time, but eventually I trained myself not to touch my pockets, and nowadays my purse when walking through the store, store aisles. So the first time that I read this, I kind of had a moment where I finished that, and I'm like, huh. I... I'm grateful that I never came across an instance where I was in the store and someone approached me and said, hey, I think you're stealing. Like, what are you doing? You look kind of suspect right now. Um, thankfully, that's not happened. But in some part of my childhood and growing up, I think I adopted that kind of mindset of I need to be aware of how I'm presenting myself in public. I don't want anyone to think that I'm doing something I shouldn't. And so... I just thought that, like reading that, it, it really made me think about my own experiences um, and how I show up in public places, um, whether that's in the store or walking alongside the street. Um, that is just something that's in my subconscious. Um, yeah. And so I think as that relates to UBC, um, I think... And again, I haven't had this, this experience here at all, but even despite some of the conversations I have with people as I'm meeting you for the first time, and uh, I've volunteered with the children's um, classes every once in a while, and I've gotten to know a lot of people, but it's still something that's there, that exists in my subconscious, that you kind of want to believe the best in people, but even when you meet people and you know people and you've got these relationships formed, for me, it's still there. Like, I still have to be aware of how I'm showing up. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Um, Katie, and kind of going into that, and, um, you know, I th what I hear in Marcus some is that I'm wondering, is this a safe space or are people going to, like, look at me differently? You've recently mentioned how exhausting it is feeling, knowing that you are often the only person of color um, in certain spaces. Can you unpack that a little and what, as a woman of color, creates safe spaces for you and maybe creates an unsafe space for you? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Even as Marcus was talking and you were saying how, you know, you volunteered here and, you know, you walk around and yet you still have to be conscious about how you're showing up. And I know that feeling. And the whole time we were talking, I was like, that's so exhausting. <laughs> that is so tiring. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of people of color. Um, 
and it's not fair. <laughs> um, I think of this last week, I was at a virtual conference and one of the women there, uh, she's a person of color and she was talking about how she often gets passed over whenever she has input. Um, how frustrating that is for her because most of her colleagues are white and all these things. And I think someone asked her, like, so what are you gonna do? And she was like, I'm just gonna have to keep showing up and being excellent. And I'm like, but that's not fair <laughs> that we have to be excellent all the time. Um, that's not fair that we have to be the ones to like, toe the line and figure out whether or not it's gonna cost us something. Um, it's not super comfortable when you walk in a room and you look around and the majority of the faces that look back at you are not faces that look like yours. Um, looking around here, I'm looking at a primarily white audience and it begs the question, why is that? Why aren't there more people that look like me in this room? Is this a safe space? Have they, like work towards making this a safe space. Um, I'm really thankful for, you know, the relationships that I have here, especially, you know, with my, my small group, my Mikasa, and they have made sure that every time we, especially this last year and a half, um, with everything that went on with the resurgence of Black Lives Matter and um, how important that was, they took time to make sure that, um, they were doing work as well as making sure that uh, they had accountability. And it was nice because I knew I could just show up and I didn't have to do anything, I could just be. And it's sad that in other spaces that I walk through, I can't just be. And that's frustrating because <laughs> I'm not trying to brag, but I'm pretty great. <laughs> Um, at least I think so, and I think I have a lot to offer. And so when I walk into a space and I can't be all of that, that sucks because y'all are missing out too. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I don't know, I think it's smart for everyone to kind of take an internal uh, investigation and figure out like, what are, the, what are the spaces that I'm walking into? Are they mainly people that look like me? Are they people that don't look like me? Why is that? And that doesn't only have to deal with race. That also has to deal with, um, you know, um, the disabled community. That has to deal with um, gender, sexuality, um, citizenship, language. Like, what are we doing? And are you making sure that everyone has an equal spot at the table? I hope that answered your question. It's <laughs> great. I think you're great too, by the way. It's been confirmed, everyone. <laughs> um, Gabe, switching gears a little bit, I was in, um, having dinner the other night and really um, getting to know you um, and hearing your passion for children and how much you love kids and how you light up with, like, in talking and working with children. Um, and it's part of what you, a program that you're doing now is. But you mentioned that it uh, is problematic as a Hispanic male. Can you talk about that and unpack that of like why that passion is problematic as a Hispanic male? Uh, yeah, so uh, I work with primarily uh, youth, so people under 18, the school systems, after school programs, stuff like that. Uh, but also just growing up, I always enjoyed, uh, you know, playing with kids, taking care of them. Uh, my family's really close and there's a lot of children in it, so I always, uh, had experiences just being able to have fun and enjoy their presence. Uh, 
And growing up and coming into adulthood, though, I had a few key experiences which now have reinforced a narrative of this kind of like, I have to be careful mentality when I am working with children. Uh, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of biases going against me in that. Uh, one, uh, not even just my race, but my, my height, my broad shoulderness, you know, like people are just intimidated by the shape of me. Um, <laughs> I've been told, like, oh, Gabe, like, you know, you could break me like a twig. I was like, I, I would never do that. <laughs> um, and then going on to race, it's like it adds on even more. And uh, something I really um, kind of remembered in uh, kind of meditating over what I would say today is that coming to Baylor, uh, I remember my first day I came, I was all dressed up, but I was really busy. So I remember coming to my dorm room, you know, I, I looked at my roommates really quick, dropped my stuff, and then like, I was like, oh, I have to go find my parents. So I ran out really quickly. Uh, later, they gave me the nickname, The Cartel. And like, when I, I was a freshman, I was just like, oh yeah, it's funny, ha ha. But mm. like, looking back at it, I'm like, well, why did they do that? And yeah. I remember them saying, oh, it's because mm. you're this tall Hispanic man and like, mm. you didn't say anything and we were really worried. Like, were you some like hood, hoodlum from like mm. the neighborhood that was just gonna have all this stuff uh, that you're gonna bring into the dorm? And I was like, oh wow, like it, at the moment it didn't phase me, but I realized and think that this reinforces my thought like, oh, people think I'm intimidating. People th think I'm threatening, that I'm bringing some negative um, thing into the environment. Hmm. Uh, and then working with children, uh, I, I, you know, this whole thought of like being a man and, you know, I think it's hard because statistically I, I don't have that going for me. Being a man actually is something that people could be like, oh, look, look at, all, look at everything that's happened. Like, men are the perpetrators. And it's like, but that's not, I'm not all men. I'm, I'm me. And so it's really hard of this thought like, oh, I, you know, my family's really close. We're really touchy-feely. Like, picking up a kid, giving them raspberries is like something that's completely normal, completely loving. And even for cousins who we see once a year, you know, friends of family. But if I were to, you know, be at a children's, uh, like taking care of children, and I do that to uh, someone outside of my culture, that they would be really taken back by it. And, you know, it's, it's just so difficult of thinking, oh, I would do this for the people I love, right? And I'm, I'm, this is something that's not, like, odd or out of the ordinary, but here it is, and I have to constantly hold myself back. So it's like, I, I have to love you, but I also have to make sure that what the way I'm loving you doesn't make other people feel uncomfortable, mm. e even if there's no malice or intention to it. Yeah. Add to that a little bit. So I was looking at this book this morning, and what you just said, Gabe, reminded me of this. Um, so she talks about harmony in one of her chapters, and she identifies that as the absence of outright conflict. Um, but it often leaves deeper complications untouched. And so I think that's kind of that internal dialogue that you're having of, you know, I recognize the good in people, but like that troubled me a lot. And so she also shared a story about one of her uh, teachers, I think it was in middle school, who had a seating chart um, and she called out herself in one of the classes and said, I, I'm sorry because I think 
this, this seating chart is racist. And the reason she came to that conclusion was because um, she did the seating chart wrong in her eyes and she had two black girls sitting next to each other. And when she saw that, her first thought was, oh no, I'm gonna have to move them because they're gonna be rowdy. They're gonna cause a scene mm -hmm. in the class. And so in her kind of vulnerability, sharing that with the class and telling them, we're going away with the seating chart, sit wherever you'd like. Um, while that was a noble act for Austin being in that class, it was, it started that internal dialogue and that dichotomy that exists within harmony. And so she, read, to read another paragraph, <laughs> um, she said, it was the first time I saw beyond my own perception of the racial harmony at my school. I was, gra I, I was grateful that I didn't have to deal with overt acts of racism, but was it better to know that teachers silently believed I would be a nuisance unless I proved otherwise? How could I know if beneath other amicable interactions, the stereotypes and biases of those in power were operating against students who looked like me? So when you shared that, that made me think about that. Thanks for sharing that, Marcus. Mm -hmm. Gary, um, 2020 was terrible for so many reasons, um, for many of us. Uh, you've mentioned in ways it felt like a dream come true and reflecting on ways white people began to acknowledge more broadly the systemic racism that has existed in America really since inception, but also how this same feeling was enraging. Can you unpack how both of those things are true in your experience over the last couple years? Yeah, um, certainly. It was horrible. <laughs> 2020 was horrible. Um, and, you know, the, the, the best metaphor I've been able to come up with might be a little problematic, but I'm going to try to share it here, hopefully in a safe and respectful way. But, um, you know, I, I have thought a lot as a person of color and as a writer through the years about something that I've just called the weight of wonder, like the, the pressure, the burden of wondering uh, if you're being treated a certain way because of racism or because um, of something that you've done or some mixture of those two things and having all the tabs open all the time of wondering what's safe and what's not and uh, how much of myself I can bring to a space, you know, is really burdensome. And so in 2020, as there was this, like, real reawakening to the very the reality of racism in our country it sort of felt to me like um if if i had been someone who who was abused which i have been fortunate that i have not been so that's where this is uh, murky waters but if i had been someone who was abused by a parent or by a partner and i had been telling pe people and uh, then 20 years later, a lot of other people came forward and said that person abused them as well. And so then everyone said, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. It was, that must have been horrible. And it's like, well, it does feel good for you to acknowledge that, but also 20 more years of damage has happened because you weren't listening until it was gruesomely in your face. And um, so, you know, I think about also another thing that I guess is imperfect as all things are, but I think about a scene a lot from Remember the Titans and uh, 
two of the white football players uh, told two of the black football players to come into this like bar with them and the, and the black football players said like, oh, we can't go in there. And the white player said, yes, of course you can. You're with us and we just won or you know something like that. And then of course the black players were treated poorly and shamefully and, and when they came out, the white player said, we're so sorry, we didn't know. And they said, but we told you. We told you. We just now told you. And so um, I think about all the times that I tried to both remain safe and also communicate how unsafe the world felt for me in terms of um, how much or little I was listened to and taken seriously as a professional, how much or little I was seen as a viable um, a dating partner, how much or little my work, my talents were uh, rewarded compared to other people. And... Um, and I think about not just me, but all the, the collective voice of people of color who've been saying all the time. And so it was strange to feel like on the one hand, this like swell of pride to see so many white people in the streets, putting themselves at danger in multiple ways since we were also in the COVID pandemic, but also feeling like so mad at them for, for, for taking so long. And so... I've never experienced anything like it. it. It was a real surreal experience with real flashes of comfort and discomfort. So that's at least the first part of your question. Was that all of your question? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so in a kind of a closing question for each of you, and Gabe, we'll start with you. Um, as UBC is a predominantly white um, congregation, and we seek to elevate... Um, minority voices in many ways within the congregation. Um, what are some dreams and hopes that you have either for the Big C Church or even particularly for UBC for us to continue to elevate voices of people of color within the congregation and also create safe spaces? Um, so I think for me, the thing that I have really been holding on to lately is this uh, idea of tradition in my life with my culture. Uh, coming to Waco so many years ago, being outside of my family, I just, I haven't had a lot of those. Uh, I come from San Antonio, so really big fiesta town, right? Uh, everyone celebrates together. Uh, a lot of Hispanic heritage. Uh, it, it's just easy to participate in that. And coming to Waco, it's not as easy. You have to go and find people and communities that are celebrate uh, in those ways. And so for UBC, I think I have felt welcomed and I do enjoy being here. Uh, but something that would, I think, add to my experience and make me feel loved as an individual uh, would be to see more of that tradition and culture be brought up, especially because Waco does have a significant Hispanic population. Yeah. Uh, and you know that could even bring in other community members as well. Uh, and yeah, so I think that that's kind of it for me, just seeing more of that tradition being brought into the church and incorporated into services, worship, whatever it is. Uh, but yeah, I think that'd be really important and good. Okay. Thanks, Kay. Mm -hmm. We'll go down the line. Um, I would say the two things that, that I think about are stories, and stories in the sense of knowing people, knowing who they are, their background, 
um, that's more than the quick interactions you have. Hi, how was your day? How was your weekend? And, and then just going about your day, but sitting with someone, getting to know them for who they are and what they believe in. Um, I think that kind of brings people together. Um, that along with um, behaviors or actions that welcome people. So with you and Josh standing out by the door welcoming people as they enter, that's, that's something that I think about from the church that I went to growing up um, in Houston. And I, I used to hate it as a kid, but I've got, gotten more respect for it now. But I would kid with my, with my parents of, it takes like 15, 20 minutes going in and out of church when we parked right there. I can see the car. You, ha you know like half the people here. Can we just go? Um, but that truly like, it brings people together when you have those interactions um, and I've, I've experienced that here, which is nice. Some of the other churches I've been to, not so much. And I think that's what drew me away was I can walk all the way into my seat, be there for the whole sermon, leave, and I've only said hi to like one person. And so when that happens, I don't feel like I'm welcome. I don't feel like, I mean, I know people see me, but I don't feel like I'm seen. Um, and so having that, um, it, it, is, it is nice. It is a nice feeling. Thanks, Marcus. Will you read the question for me again, just to make sure I'm answering the yeah. precise thing you're asking? Um, if you meander, that's great, too. <laughs> so what is your hope for kind of the Big C Church, even, even particularly for UBC, as we continue and we try to elevate uh, voices of color within our congregation and the larger Sea Church, and, and also as we create safe spaces or try to create safe spaces. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my hope for the Big Sea Church and for UBC, one is in light of what I was saying before, that we are sort of known as an institution that, that gets there faster. Um, that um, And I don't mean that in a sloppy way. I mean, we have to take our time. We have to be deep, but I think that... Um, there's there's a lot of injustice, um, and at this moment in time, there's been a real focus on what it means to be black in this country and in the world. Um, but we have opportunities. We're we're too late on all the things, but we have opportunities to get there faster around ableism, ageism, heterosexism. Um, xenophobia, all, all the things. Um, and so I think we have to, the church has to be better at um, making it a practice to be uncomfortable, to hear different stories, which sometimes are comforting and sometimes are discomforting, but also to, um, you know, when I think about the sleepiness of um, people who are in the advantaged or dominant group over decades and centuries, um, it makes sense to me pra practically because it's hard to be human and we're all doing a lot of things and we're all trying to care for other people in our lives and get our jobs done. And so if we are going to get there faster, if we're going to have injustice, um, like fighting against injustice be a major part of who people see the church as, 
it won't happen accidentally and incidentally. It will have to be a thing that's in the strategic plans of institutions. It will have to be in the thing that's in the, um, on the schedule and the calendar, uh, on the reading list for those of us as individuals. So I think that's one thing. And then um, I also think we have to continue to be, you know, we, I talked about loving the, n no distinction between the sacred and the secular. And that's a, that's a way of being, uh, diunital is a word that I've used, uh, I've learned recently that comes from Afrocentrism and it's pretty similar to non-binary that comes to us from queer thought. And that, that both and, that ability to, say that there are multiple and nuanced ways to think about things. I think many of us, at least I know that for me, what church gave me was a lot of concern about the one right way to do things, mostly in my individual life. And I think we have to get a lot better at being having multiple paths forward for how to fight against injustice. If we spent like, I think about like people who are teenagers now, and my hope is that they're getting much less indoctrination about uh, what to be ashamed for in their own life and much more examples of how to get out there systemically and change the world. Yeah. And the other thing I would just say is that um, with regard to racism in particular, that we, speaking of not being, speaking of being non-binary and diunital, that we don't make it about black and white. It's so frequently, we're only hearing the stories of what it's like to be now that it's popular and interesting and there's some social capital, people want to hear the stories of black people, but we have to hear the stories of Asian and Asian American people. We have to hear the stories of indigenous people, of people who are Latina, Latina, Latinx. And it's got to be, we can't just get exhausted when it's not just this or that. So I would yeah. say that that would be my hope for the church. Thanks, Carrie. Beautifully said. Um, I'm glad, Carrie, had you read the question again because I needed <laughs> the refresher. Um, but I also just thought of, you know, what you mentioned with that movie scene of I, I hope that the church is not, we're not going to have to be told, I told you. Like, I just told you that this is what was happening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at, at UBC, I think we put such a beautiful emphasis on loving our neighbor. And I feel like I hope that that is what happens um, and making sure that the, these spaces are safe spaces for that to happen. And that's like Carrie said, not only with um, when it focuses on race relations, that's also with um, the LGBTQIA plus community. That's also with um, you know, our friends who um, are not American citizens. That's also with the disabled community. Us, like, I love that we are wearing masks right now because I think that that is a huge way to love the disabled community. And if we are not individually asking ourselves where are the places that I have privilege and what am I doing to make sure that I am loving those who are not in those spaces, or not in those same spaces with me, then we're gonna fail. We're not gonna love our neighbor well, because we won't know how to love our neighbor well. Half of, half of this is doing the work, and if we're not doing the work, then we're not gonna know how to, how to do it. Um, 
And it's gonna take all of us. It's not just gonna take, you know, those who are marginalized. Um, and it's so hard and frustrating that it's often those who are marginalized that are having to, you know, start that work. And so I would say, you know, for the church, I would ask that we hear for and seek out um, voices that are not like our own. I'd love to see people up here on this stage um, that are of all different heritages and not just during the months that we're supposed to celebrate them. Yeah. I'd love to see people up here on this stage who are also part of the LGBTQIA community and not just during the month of June. If we say that we're going to love our neighbor, then we have to work at it. Love is not a passive thing, it's a verb. And I know that it's exhausting um, for those who are in the marginalized, these marginalized community, we're exhausted too. <laughs> and so I would just pray that we keep in mind what it means to love one another and that we do it with grace and understanding. And when we mess up to, as Brene Brown says, circle back apologize and try again and thank people when they correct us um, and ask, how can I do better? Well said. Can I say one more yep, thing? Please. I just remembered when you said we're exhausted. <laughs> um, when we were talking about it the other day, Tof, I was, I was saying that one of the things that I've been so touched by that's been so helpful is that in this last, in 2021 at least, I'll say that there's been a lot of times, you know, you've probably heard of the stereotype of the angry black woman, and um, it's been such a comfort to me to not feel that I have to be the angry black woman in certain rooms at UBC because I know someone else is going to get angrier, faster, quicker about the injustice than, than me. And so I get yeah. to not be, I mean, I, I will always be the angry black woman if that's the thing that's going to keep me and other people safe, but I like to be... Um, and not that these are truly opposites, but I like to be the, the peacemaking, the easygoing. I like to get to be those things. And when I know that I have a white ally who's going to be much more frustrated about it than I am, then I can live in peace. Then I can, I can get to be the full range of things that humans are meant to be and not always be stressed and angry, et cetera. So I think that's another thing that individuals in the church can do. And, and I have to do it too, right, for the areas where I, I'm from a historically advantaged group. I have to be the one who's taking up the space yeah. around disability or something like that. Yeah. Thanks, Carrie. Can I share one more? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is this on? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> An another well, I paragraph. Point. I love it. <laughs> to that point. Um, and thinking about, like, allyship and others doing more. Um, she wrote of an uh, experience in college she had. Um, first, she, this was a marketing professor, um, and this was Austin's first black teacher. Um, and I'll just, it's a little lengthier um, paragraph here. But she writes, the gift of Professor McMath's presence went beyond the fact that she looked like me though that was special all by itself. The true gift was that I didn't have to create my own, my own sense of belonging in her class. In every previous classroom, 
I had been responsible for decoding teachers' references to white middle-class experiences. For example, it's like when you're sailing, fill in the blank. Or you know how when you're skiing, you have to fill in the blank. My white teachers had an unspoken commitment to the belief that we are all the same, a default setting that masked for them how often white culture bled into the curriculum. For my example, when teachers wanted to drive home the point, um, wait, hold on. Okay, skipping a chapter, or a uh, section. Um, Professor McGrath was, was different. One day while illustrating a point regarding business planning, she decided to use the example of opening a beauty shop. Our conversation moved along as usual until Professor McMath made an analogy to, get, to getting a relaxer. My head snapped up in recognition. But all the white students looked toward the lectern completely baffled. I was the only one who understood the reference. I smiled at Professor McMath while she feigned surprise at the other students' confusion. Come on, y'all. You don't know what a relaxer, y'all know what a relaxer is, right? They continued to stare blankly at her until she explained that some, that some black women choose to get a relaxer, which is sort of the opposite of what happens when white people get a perm. Um, she winked at me and I grinned from ear to ear. I relished in the sense of belonging I felt in her classroom. Suddenly, I wasn't content to feel like I was attending a college made for someone else. Thank you for that story. I think that's a a good spot to close. And so thank you all so much for your vulnerability and for sharing your stories with us. Um, would y'all join me in thanking them as they step down? So always at the end of our um, sermon time, which this was for us today, uh, we like to take a moment to pause um, and to reflect and allow the Spirit to minister something new to us. So if you would take a few moments to pause and ask the Spirit uh, to minister to you.